So earlier this week, I had an experience of which I've never had before. And it started about, uh, this all started about February, March of this year when I decided for the first time that I was going to floss like every day. And uh, I'm not embarrassed to admit the fact that I did not normally do that because as I shared my story, the story with people this week, they're all like, yeah, I don't really floss either. So I know you ain't flossing. So like judge all you want. Um, but yeah, I was like, I'm gonna start flossing. I'm gonna do this thing, and and because I used to live all the philosophy of like maybe every once in a while, but like the two weeks before you go to the dentist, then you floss to like try to like survive. But other than that, whatever. Well, I changed my my approach this year. Started flossing every day, and I had a dentist appointment uh, uh, this this past week. And so I was ready, you know, the, the, as always, the hygienist was trying to rip my teeth out of my gums, but we hold strong. It hurt, not as much as it us, us, usually hurts. Uh, I bled, but not nearly as much as I normally bled. And I survived, right? And I was so excited because at the end of the dentist appointment, the dentist comes in, like looks over everything, whatever, and it says, Dylan, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Everything looks great. And now, I don't know about you, but in my entire life, I have never heard that from the dentist. I have always heard a combination of brush better or floss better, right? And so I left the dentist like, I did it. Like dreams can actually happen. Like they did come true. And I, and I learned, like I always figured, you know, dentists always say, you know, the only thing I did different was I floss. I, I didn't brush any different. What I learned was I always kind of assumed that the dentist, you know, because they make your life miserable when you're there, they're just always trying to make your life miserable. And so they tell you to floss because it's, they want you to, you know, be in pain. It actually works. Like I didn't, who would have thought it actually makes a difference. That's what I learned. I knew it was something you're supposed to do, but I didn't understand like it actually matters. And so first service applauded for me, but that's okay. I don't need your applause. Uh, and I share, but I share that story. If you can say this, here's the question we're looking at this morning. What does Jesus's resurrection mean for us? So if you were here last week, as we were continuing our series through First Corinthians, through Masterclass, we were, Paul, who wrote the letter that we are in within 20 years of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, kind of gave the historical reliability that this actually occurred, that he actually resurrected. And he talked about one of the things that he said is that over 500 people, many of whom were still alive, could attest to the fact that Jesus had resurrected and that many of the people reading this letter could actually go and ask them. So he said it did happen. And so because it actually happened, we now look at what does that actually mean for us? And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, if you don't and want to read along, there's a black one somewhere around you. You can open up uh, that and read there. If you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. So again, last week, he's basically saying that because Jesus actually resurrected. And so he starts off because this actually happened by saying this in verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so if you were here last week, what did he end by saying? He ended up pretty much saying this, that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, our faith is worthless and people should look at us with pity right? If it didn't actually happen. But if it did, now he's going to say, not just if, but because it did, here's what this actually means. And he starts by saying this, because Christ, who is the first, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, uh, Paul uses this terminology of falling asleep four times in chapter 15 and many other times in other various letters that he wrote. And it's this idea that if you're a follower of Christ, yes, you do die. But one day when Jesus returns and recreates the new heavens and the new earths, uh, we will resurrect with physical bodies. We don't exactly know what they will look like, but we'll actually have physical bodies. In other words, that what is happening now is a temporary state. We are dead, but we are not dead forever. Verse 21, he says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now he's referencing back to Adam and Eve, the Genesis account of creation, where God originally uh, created a good and perfect world, but sin came in and corrupted it. Evil, pain, and suffering is now here. Our, 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 our creation, how we live, is not what it will, will be in the future. And this is all possible because sin started through one man. And yet Jesus' or God's solution was to come in the form of a man himself and provide the solution so that all who follow this second man, this Jesus Christ, will receive grace and forgiveness and mercy, not because we did anything to earn it, because simply because God loves us and he made a way for us to experience life that we could not experience without him. In other words, that this resurrection is important because it is the only way for us to experience true life. What is the gospel? Again, the gospel is not that you try really hard and you show up on Sundays and you give and you pray and you treat other people nice. Those are all good things, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is King, that he is Lord, and that he has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves by living a perfect life, dying the death that we deserved, and resurrecting to defeat sin and evil and darkness. And that will one day consummate when he returns a second time. In other words, here's what we need to know as we're reading through this text of what it means for us to understand the resurrection, and that's this, that Jesus is our only hope. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus is our only hope. It's either Jesus did this for us, or we're all out of luck, we're all doomed, there is nothing that can save us, there's nothing that can give us grace and forgiveness if not for Jesus. He is our only hope. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were in a, when you were doing something and you only had like one thing had to work out, otherwise you wouldn't get what you wanted. I don't know if that makes sense, but let me give you an example from my own life. About five years ago, uh, I wanted to buy a flat screen TV for the first time, like a good old flat screen TV. And so I, I was searching around and this was like the last year that they made plasmas and I really wanted a plasma. And basically they found this like this last model that Samsung made. And I was like, I want that 50 inches is going to be awesome. And so I was looking around trying to find like the cheapest option. And I go to Costco, which we're members of. And, you know, because if they have stuff, it's typically a little cheaper. And they didn't have the 50-inch version, but they had the 55-inch version, and it was like $75 cheaper than the 50-inch version that you could get anywhere else. And I'm like, we don't need 55 inches. Yeah, we need 55 inches, and it's cheaper. I'm going to get it. And so I, it was a Saturday night. I still remember this. And I was online on Costco, you know, their website, and putting in my credit card information, about to hit submit. And then I was like, wait, why don't I tomorrow go to Costco itself and actually go to the store? That way I don't have to deal with shipping. And we lived in an apartment that time and having to like lug the thing over. And I was like, let me just see if they have it in the store first. And if not, then I'll order it. So the next day, wake up, go to church, come home, watch the Panthers play. It was a Sunday afternoon for like the last time. It was kind of like the going away, just like the last hurrah of this little 32-inch TV. And then I'm going to go get my new TV, right? So the game's over. I drive to Costco and I find out that they don't have it in the store. And the lady said, you know, the store and online are like two different entities. So you can't even order it here. You just need to go back online and order it. And I said, okay, I'll do that. Drive back home, go online and go to checkout, uh, buy the, the TV. And it says out of stock. I'm like, what? How do you run out? Like you had it last night. Like how do you? And then I realized because I always have like 50 uh, browser tabs open at once that I still had it in my cart in the other browser. So I'm like, I got you. So I went to hit submit. All my stuff was in there and it said, your session is timed out. I'm like, what are you, what is, what is happening here? 
And so I didn't, I couldn't get it, right? And so I, I was really upset. I was like trying to find other places. Nobody had it. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to get a 50-inch TV or whatever, LCD, whatever. I'll just, but I was really bummed because it was cheaper and it was bigger. And so I was like, well, here's what I'm going to do. I went to Walmart. They didn't have it. Best Buy didn't have it. I said, I'm going to drive over to the H.H. Gregg that was in Briar Creek. I think the whole company is shut down now. I don't know because nobody actually likes going in there. But it was an appliance store, right? And I was like, let me just see if they had it. It's my, this is my last chance. And if not, then I have to pay more money for a smaller TV. So I go in, they have one remaining, right? One remaining. And I'm like, you guys price match, right? And they're like, yeah, if you can like prove it or whatever. And so Costco still, even though they were sold out, they still had it on their website. So I got the TV at the price that I wanted. And if you've ever been to our house, you ever see like that is a much way, that is the TV that, that's much too big for the like, space you live in. That is true. But that's why we have it, right? Because it was at the end of the day, who would have thought H.H. Gregg was my only hope. And that's what Paul is saying here about Jesus when it comes to us and his grace and forgiveness and mercy of God. That he's better than H.H. H. Gregg, right? He's like, no, but it's, like, it's the only hope right there. Now, now, here's the thing. Now, when we hear that, right, that Jesus is our only hope, sometimes we can push back by saying, well, that seems too narrow. That seems too exclusive. That seems not very fair. Why would Jesus actually be the only way when we have seemingly all these other options. I, I say this quote sometimes because it's a, it's a favorite of mine, uh, but we, we kind of we assume, why can't different religions be different trails up to the same mountain? The reality is, uh, I don't know who originally said it, but when it comes to the religions of the world, they're all basically the same, except for what they teach about God, salvation, sin, heaven, hell, and the afterlife. In other words, they ain't the same mountain at all. They're all going different directions. At least in Christianity, it's honest about it, and it's open about it. And so the question is not, why is Jesus the only way? The better question is, why did he come at all? Why, if he did not have to, why did he come at all? Could it not be? Because it actually is the only way for God to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The irony of saying that Christianity and Jesus is too exclusive is that if you take all the religions of the world, that it is actually the most inclusive of all of them, which makes sense if what we read in Scripture is true, that God actually loves everybody and it desires a relationship with everybody. See, the gospel is that no matter who you are, where you live, your gender, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, what you have done or what has been done to you, everybody's equal before God. That he loves everybody and gives everyone an opportunity to come and to know him. And so Paul is saying that that is true because of what he accomplished in the resurrection, that Jesus is our only hope. And so he continues by saying this, right? So just in verse 23, he's just talked about how Christ, we will be all made alive in him, but each in his own order. Verse 23, Christ, the first fruits, and then afterward at his coming, when he returns again to reestablish the heavens and the new earth, those who belong to Christ. In other words, Christ first, Christ is the first one to resurrect as in he's already done it. And secondly, when he returns a second time to judge, to rule, and to reign, all believers that have, that were, have died before he has come will be reunited with physical resurrected bodies in his kingdom, where there is no death, there is no decay, there is no sickness, there is no illness, uh, there is no pain, there is no suffering. Now, although we're not quite sure what it's actually going to look like, it's going to be incredible and it's going to be awesome. And it starts because of what Christ has done for us, that we will actually get to experience that because of what he did for us. And so verse 24, he continues, then comes the end. So after this last Jesus returns, he comes the end of the world, and it looks like this. He says, when, the, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he, talking about Jesus, must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. 
For God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. In other words, that Jesus Christ will return to judge the world. As the New Testament writers would talk about this idea of the cosmos, that he is going to uh, recreate, fix, and judge everything in creation and you and me. That he's going to do this, and then after the fact, he's going to recreate the new heavens and the new earth where we will reside, and that everything will fall under Christ's judgment, except God the Father himself, because uh, Jesus does everything from the will of the Father. Uh, in other words, I, I want to give you uh, maybe some more notes. I want to explain two things real quick when we read this passage, right? Because he's talking about how Jesus is going to return, but you might be wondering like, okay, I get that, but like, what does this look like? So let me just say two things real quick. First, again, the question when we read stuff like this is when will Christ will return? And then also, when will this new kingdom actually take place? Now, Paul's point here, just to be clear, is not to give a precise timeline of what this will actually look like. Now, there's nothing wrong to be curious about it, to be curious about the end of the world and what all this will happen. The book of Revelation, the last book in the the scriptures, talk about it. And so people kind of try to figure out what's going to happen. But Paul's saying is he doesn't even know. And that's not the point. The point is that it will happen, but we should not not get hung up on it. Uh, If you've been through our partnership class, which is kind of our membership process here at New City Church, you've heard me say this before. This is kind of our stance, just so we're clear on what this will look like the end of the world. Here's what we would say if you come to our partnership class that's this, that we as a church believe that God will bring to the world to, the, to its end in his own time and his own way. At that time, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth, and Christ will judge both the saved and the unsaved. Those who have trusted Christ will receive a glorified body and dwell forever with the Lord, which is what Paul is saying in this text. And then we go on to say this, that faithful Christians differ on the time and manner in which Christ will return. New City Church would be prefer to be on the welcoming committee and not the planning committee. And so, regardless of when and how Jesus returns, here's the point, that our mandate as followers of Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, does not change. That we are to live faithfully with the hope and prayer that God would, help, would, allow, would use us to bring as many people as possible into a saving relationship with him until he returns. It's not to say that we can't care about these things at all, but that whatever it looks like, it does not change what God is calling us to do here, which is to love him and love other people. And secondly, just as a side note, I also want to say this, that heaven is not the goal of the Christian life. Heaven is not the goal. The kingdom of God is the goal. Yes, scripture does seem to point out that when followers of Jesus die in the current state as things currently are, we do go to heaven when we die. But that is not the goal. That is a temporary place that we stay, that believers stay in until Jesus Christ comes uh, and to create this final destination, this final resting place. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about what the kingdom of God actually is next week. But just to say this, that if we are walking around in the first century, and how we often talk about going to heaven when we die, and it's about heaven and all this stuff, uh, many first, Christian, first century Christians would be kind of confused by that. Because again, the goal is not heaven. The goal is Jesus and our life-giving relationship with him that will ultimately happen for all of us in his kingdom. And all that to say, here's Paul's point. I mean, those, I know there's kind of some maybe details that I don't want us to get too stuck in, but here's Paul's point. That Jesus will return and reign. Paul's point is that Jesus will return and reign. Now, again, the question is how, and I kind of look at it like this. Uh, Christina, so my wife and I have been married for eight, nine years, and um, I, it's still to this day it happens. And when I try to explain this to her, she looks at me like, what are you talking about? But you know, sometimes when you like cook things, you need to let dishes soak, right? They need to soak because you can't, you know, it's easy. Yeah, that's right. Amen. 
I have found, and it still happens to this day, that if you let a dish soak in the sink overnight, it's gone in the morning. It is, I don't know how, I don't know where it goes, I don't know what happens to it, but it is gone. To this day, it still happens, right? And it's the same thing with Jesus. I don't know how, I don't know what it'll look like. All I know is it's going to happen just like my dishes in the sink. And so with that being said, Paul continues by saying this in verse 28. And so after all this happens, when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself, Jesus himself, will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, which is God the Father, so that God may be all in. In other words, Jesus is one with God, and yet at the same time, he's one and he's equal, but he functionally submits to the Father's will. This is uh, kind of what's known as the Trinity, which is hard for us in our current finite minds to fully understand. But you have God, and He is one God, yet at the same time, you have three distinct beings. You have God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. They all have different roles to play. And Paul's point is really to say, that here's what, all that to say, I would say this, and here's why it's important for us to know that Jesus is our only hope as we read this text. Here's what I think Paul's getting at. At the end of the day, everything will be judged by Him. Everything, both the living, everything that we've done, everything that we've said, all of creation will be judged by him. Now, if you think about it, that's a little bit of a scary thing that he will, he does love us and he does give us grace because he is a loving and graceful God. That means justice is also an important thing. Like he has to do something with our sin, with pain, with evil, with suffering. So at the end of the day, everything will be judged by him. And if that is true, then here's what this means for us, that only he can ultimately help us. Like you can do all the things that you might want to do to maybe make God love you more and get on his good side, all these sort of things. That's fine. But at the end of the day, only he can judge us, right? So only he can actually help us. I like to think of it like this, and I've shared this before, but my senior year of college, I started as a music major, then I switched to religion. And so going into my senior year, I found out that all I have to do is take this music history class and then I can get a minor. So I'm like, sure, I'll do it. It was a terrible decision because it was my only Friday class all year long, and it was really hard. It was really hard. But I tried, I did all these things, I tried really hard, and the last, the final exam comes up, and I wake up the morning of the final exam, spring semester, about to graduate, and I realize, thinking that the, I woke up thinking the exam was at 11 a.m., and I found out I just missed it because it was at 8 a.m. Then in that moment, I'm like, you have got to be kidding. I wasted, oh, I was like, but also, I was like, I also needed those three credit hours to graduate. So not only this minor is going out the window, I got to do something, like, I ain't got time for that, I am done. Like, this is over, Right? And so what I had to do, I had to go to the professor and pretty much say, here's what happened. Would you allow me to retake the test? Now, in that moment, I can beg, I can plead, I can do whatever I want to do. But at the end of the day, it was her decision, right? It was her class. She was the professor. Only she actually had the power to actually either let me retake it or make me get a zero and fail the class. Now, thankfully, she let me retake it, which was great. But that's the point here is that if Jesus is our ultimate judge, there ain't nothing we can do. We are, we are, we are, we are, we are, you know, in His um, mercies or in His graces. That the only He is the one that can do anything for us. And because of the resurrection, that's actually good news. In other words, Paul continues by saying this in verse twenty-nine. Now, this part of the last few verses, he's gonna he talked theologically what it meant. Now he's gonna talk practically, like what does this actually mean for us? And he says this in twenty-nine. So otherwise, because he's actually resurrected from the dead, uh, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? 
if the dead are not raised at all, then why are people being baptized for them? So he's talking about, again, some people say this resurrection thing isn't possible. Now, this verse is very confusing. Again, just like some of the other passages we've read uh, throughout 1 Corinthians, uh, the people who are reading this would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. We aren't quite sure what Paul is referencing here. It could be one of two things. Uh, it could be that, those, that, that believers were baptizing their fellow believers who had died, but died before they were baptized. And of course, the point there would be that baptism does not save you. It is a, it is a reflection. It is a symbol of the life change that Christ has done for us, but it does not save us, so that, that, which means we don't, need, we don't need to be baptizing people that have died because it doesn't save them. Or it might be a little bit more likely, he could be talking about this practice that perhaps was going on where people were baptizing non-Christians after they died. And Paul's point is if they didn't believe and trust in the resurrection, you baptizing them after the fact does not change that. So why are you actually doing it? Verse 30, he then goes on to say this, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day. As surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man. What good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, he said this kind of wild beast metaphor is something that happened in the city of Ephesus. Maybe it was a, a beating or a jailing, but he went through something difficult. Uh, and he's saying, if Jesus didn't resurrect, then it's all for nothing. And even the first century readers of this letter, many of them probably de- de- faced persecution of some kind. He's saying, you're doing that for no reason if Jesus didn't actually do for us what he claimed to have done. In other words, like we talked about last week, if Christ didn't rise, we're wasting our time. He's saying, let us eat, let us drink, because tomorrow we die, and none of it matters, right? None of it matters if he didn't actually do this. But because he actually did do this, here's how he ends this passage, this section. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. And I say this to your shame. In other words, he gives kind of three imperatives, and then because these things are true, what we should actually do about it. He says, don't be deceived or misled. Don't be deceived. In other words, this resurrection actually happened. And because the resurrection actually happened, it has radical implications for us. So he says, don't be deceived. Come to your senses and stop sinning. Follow Jesus, right? Give your life to Jesus. Don't live a life as if it doesn't matter. Ultimately, his point is this, that to reject reject the resurrection is to reject Christ, Right? Christ did not come to be some good moral example or to be some good teacher. He came to reconcile the world to God. And so if we walk around by thinking, well, I just need to go to church and be a good person, and I just need to believe that God exists, we need to understand that it's fundamentally at odds with what Scripture teaches us, that we have to do something with the resurrection. He's calling us to actually believe and trust that it actually happened. In other words, here's what Paul is telling us to do, or maybe rather what we should not do in this text, and that's this. He's saying, don't be ignorant about what Christ has done right? Do not be ignorant of what Christ has done. Now, in this context, this is not an ignorance of like, I just didn't know. This is a willful ignorance of ignoring the fact that this actually happened. He said, because this actually happened, don't live your life as if it doesn't matter. It did actually happen. And I don't know if you've ever experienced something where somebody was willfully ignorant of something. I was looking it up because I remembered this week, uh, there's this thing called the last man standing challenge where it's not, a, it's not quite as big as it was a few years ago because I think it was basically run through Twitter when Twitter was a little bit bigger than it is today. Um, and basically, the last man standing challenge was who could go the longest without knowing who won the Super Bowl, 
Like that was the point. And of course it was just like, uh, I mean, no, you didn't actually win anything. And so, and, but people would post on there, like when they lost, you know, here's what happened. And so if you go on their website, it's really funny. You can find out what they call their, the deaths where people would report how they found out who won the Super Bowl. Right? So they're trying not, to, they're, they're willfully being ignorant about who won. But one guy was saying, it was like the day or two after the Super Bowl, and he was you know, playing this game, and so he was walking through the airport with uh, screamo music, earbuds in, as loud as it could be, and he was just like walking straight, like not making eye contact with anybody, like not looking in any of the newsstands. He's just like walking there, and he goes and he sits down, and he's waiting for this flight, like just staring there, crazy loud music. And I'm reading his story, and I'm like, bro, you know, when I fly out of RDU, it says if you see something, say something. I would have said something about you. Like, what are you, something about me just like this, like whatever. I'm like, you scaring me here, right? And he says, basically, he gets onto the plane. He's getting the same thing. He's sitting there, loud music, but he had to take out his, ear, his, his earbuds uh, when, they, when the flight attendant, you know, did the whole safety spiel. And at the end of it, she said, go Steelers. So I guess it was the year that the Steelers won, right? There's all these funny stories. One person, their professor told them, a spouse told them. One person had the story about how his 80-year-old mother told them who won the Super Bowl. And it was funny, right? But what they're trying to, they were trying to be ignorant but what had happened, and what Paul is saying is don't do this with the resurrection. In other words, he says it this way in 1 Thessalonians. It'll be on the screen. It's another letter that Paul wrote. He talked about it this way. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he's not saying that we should not grieve, that we should not be in pain, that we should not have sorrow when those we love die. But he's saying that in the midst of that, you don't have to grieve as if there is no hope because you know that this isn't the end. And this isn't the end because of what the resurrection accomplished for us. Now, that being said, I, I want to just make, a, make this point as we're looking at this text. You're here today. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, and so you understand this whole gospel thing that Christ laid down his life for you. Or maybe you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing, but you're here today, so you're hearing it. And I think what we can falsely believe sometimes, particularly if you're a follower of Jesus living in the South, you know, people have gone, grown up going to church or they, were, they went to the church at some point, uh, you can falsely believe uh, that people that reject Jesus are rejecting Jesus because they have heard it and they just don't believe it. The reality of the situation is there are many people at our schools, in our workplaces, in our families who are rejecting the gospel because they don't actually know what it is. It's not that they're saying, I don't believe Jesus did what he said he, he did. They're saying, I don't even know what the gospel is. Like if you ask people what it is, they might say, well, you got to go to church or you got to be a good person. And hopefully like the day you die, you're a good person. God's in a good mood. He lets you into heaven. Or they might say, I used to go to church. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God gave his life for you and for me, that there is hope in him because of what he has done. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, we should not be content with the people that we love and that God has placed in our life, not knowing that God cares for them, that you and I should not assume that those in our lives have rejected the gospel. They might be, it could very well be the truth that they are rejecting something that they have no idea what Christ is actually offering them. This is why I was in the service talking about this, but these last few weeks, we're raising money to move into a bigger building because clearly, obviously we were out of seats, but we're not doing that 
that so that we can have a bigger building, so we could do more cool things. We're doing that because this is true, because we want to make more space for people to hear this message of grace, hope, and forgiveness. We want more people to meet Jesus and grow in relationship with him. We're doing this all because of this is true, because if this is not true, we are wasting our time. Ultimately, here is why we should not be ignorant about what Christ has done for us. And really the point, I think, of what Paul is getting at in this text, and that's this. But to miss out on Christ is to miss out on life. To miss out on Christ is not just to miss out on, on, you know, being a good person or following the rules or doing all the things. No, to miss out on Christ is actually to miss out on life itself. That Christ has something to offer us that is invaluable, that is amazing, that we will not experience it if we do not know him. And I think all of us could say, have stories of times in our lives where we missed out on something that was amazing. I remember the church that I grew up in, uh, we did the lock-in thing a few times, like when you're in middle school, high school, but we actually like took it up another level. Uh, There was a few where we did lock-in, so it was like an overnight thing, but at like midnight, from like midnight to 6 a.m., we went to Adventure Landing. If you don't know what Adventure Landing is, go-karts, laser tag, you know, games, whatever, unlimited and free. Now, not free for us. Our parents paid for it, obviously, but you could laser tag all you want, go-karts all you want, pizza all you want, games all you want. When you're a 12-year-old boy, that's heaven. Like, you're literally living in the kingdom of God right there, right? Now, I share that story because one time, I don't know what I did. I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong. It was probably one of the times my parents, you know, thought I did something, and of course I didn't. Oh, I would I? Um, but I was not allowed to go to one of them, right? Can you believe that? Like, did not let me go to one of these lock-ins. And I remember thinking, like, I am literally missing out on, on heaven on earth, right? And it was a Friday night, and it was already bad enough that I missed it. What made it even worse, it's Sunday morning, you know, people are at church, all your friends are there, and they're all talking about, like, the laser tag and the go all the stuff they did. I'm just sitting there and being like, cool, right? It was awful, right? I missed out, right? I missed out. What Paul is saying here is that's what happens when we miss out on Christ, right? You think unlimited adventure landing is awesome. Wait till you get a kingdom of God. It's going to be incredible. And the way that you get there is not by trying really hard and being a good person and going to church and giving lots of money and praying and reading. All those things are good things, but that's not what actually gets us there. It's having a relationship with Jesus, trusting that what he actually accomplished on the cross was good enough and was sufficient for you. Ultimately, here's what I think sometimes we talk about salvation, we talk about following Jesus. Here's where I think sometimes we miss the mark a little bit. Uh, We need to be clear and understand that Jesus did not come primarily to save us from something. He came to save us for something. You, You may be like me, or maybe you just grew up in the church, and so you always assume that I need to follow Jesus so that I don't go to hell. He came to save me from going to hell. And while that is part of the gospel, that is one thing that he did, that was not his primary motivation. That was not his mission. His mission was not to keep us from going somewhere, but to give us something that we could not experience without him. And what happens if we view following uh, Jesus as being saved from something? If we are not careful, we can get into bubbles, into clicks. And I'm not saying we, we need to be wise about who our friends are and how we spend our time. What happens is we feel like we're saved from something. And so we, 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 we back away. We we, return, we run from relationships. We don't do anything. We're not around people that don't know Jesus because we don't want to fall back into that trap. But the reality is, if he didn't save us from something but for something, that God is calling us to love and to serve and to befriend and to be with, to do life with people who do not yet know him. Because he's not saving us from something. He's saving us for something, which is life with him. And so at the end of the day, we all have to make, wrestle with what do we do 
with Jesus? What do we do with the resurrection? Although this life is hard and it's painful and things do not always go our way, even in this life, there is hope, grace, and forgiveness. And ultimately in the life to come is more incredible than any of us could even ask or imagine in his kingdom. And it's not because of us, it's because of him. And if we miss out on him, we miss out on everything that he has for us. Again, to miss out on Christ is to miss out on life. Let us not be people who hear this message, who have it go in one ear and out the other, but may we always be in awe and amazement and thankful of what Christ has done for us and take that uh, that love and the grace that he has given us to be our motivating factor in how we love others and love God. Again, remember, to miss out on Christ is to miss out on life. And all of that is possible because he actually rose from the dead. Let's pray.